God, sometimes we, we sing particular songs and it reminds us of uh, how dangerously close we are in singing lyrics um, that don't necessarily reflect our hearts. At the same time, we're confronted by that. We want to pray that what we just sang, that we delight in you, it wouldn't just be the refrain of a song, but it would be the, the theme of our lives, it would be the earnest desire of our hearts that we would delight more in you. As the psalmist says, that, that even though uh, everything crumble, though our heart and our flesh may fail, that God, for your people, that you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. So who do we have in heaven but you? And on this earth, our desire is, is nothing but you. So increase that in us this morning. I pray, God, now that as we open your word, that your spirit would illuminate to us the things that you want us to see, would help us to hear the things you want us to hear. And God, I pray uh, in ways that I just simply cannot, that you'd bring change and conviction upon the hearts of us as your people. Thank you for your word that is living and active. And where we may have come into here with hearts uh, as cold as stone, because of your supernatural power and the way that you work through your word, uh, this can be the moment where hearts of stone turn into hearts of flesh. And that you move us to greater joy and delight in you. So I pray you do that now through your word as we study together. Help us be humble and hungry to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. You can grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of James. We're going to be uh, continuing our study, uh, which is going to be a little bit slower movement because, as I mentioned last week, uh, many referred to the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. So it comes in smaller chunks a lot of the times. And before I, I launch in, uh, one of the things I want to reiterate from last week, and it gives me a chance just real briefly to talk about... Uh, the reality that when we, when we address trials and suffering, that one of, the, one of the risks is that even as we preach the Bible is that we can feel like um, certain passages are almost like formulas to deal with problems. And so you just slap a verse on it and practically it'll just get better, right? And so I never want to preach on trials, difficulty in that way. I don't, I don't ever want to minimize the reality of real life pain and struggle that results in real life questions for, for many of you in this room. And one of the things that's helpful for us even this morning in some ways is to, is to just sit in the reality that even in our small church, you know, we have people who are suffering physically and otherwise. And we prayed last week for uh, Michael Dyson, who's battling lymphoma. Uh, his treatment on Monday went well, it seems like. Uh, Pam is right in front of me. I'm looking this way. And I'm going to quote Mike, uh, Michael for you this morning. He, I didn't ask his permission, but um, I'm going to quote him because I want you to hear an encouragement from him in light of this text we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Mr. Bays, uh, Mr. Bays uh, is in his final days, and he was able to return home uh, this week, return home to his physical home. Uh, he's in a hospital bed in his front room enjoying uh, the sunlight from his window, and he's, I had a lot of guests come through yesterday. And so if you know Mr. Bays and you want to swing by to say hello, I'm sure he'd love to see you. Uh, please continue to pray for him, just that God would comfort him in the quietness of his own heart. Um, and that all the promises that he has meditated on over the years would just burst into life 
even as he sleeps and as he sits and welcomes visitors and can't communicate a whole lot. And then um, uh, Lydia Long, you many of you have been praying for Lydia. Randy's here with us this morning. I got a quick update from Randy. Uh, Lydia is continuing to just fight with um, challenges from heat stroke that came uh, a little over a year ago or maybe inside of a year ago and her autonomic system has just kind of sent many things into a tailspin. She hasn't eaten in several days, um, which Randy's praying will kind of reset her system. Uh, she's able to take in liquids, but she's, she's had a really rough week to 10 days. And so please continue to pray for Lydia. Um, and I highlight that not as just some moment of an illustration in a sermon, but just to highlight the realities when we talk about trials, this isn't just some theoretical philosophical issue. Like we don't look at it in, in an effort to try to win a debate or to try to sway someone in an argument. Like this to us is like ballast for our souls because we know that whether right now or in the future, we're going to face difficulties. And many of you in this room know very acutely right now the reality of trials and difficulty in your life. And so God's word this morning is just going to give you another moment to be steadied in circumstances that don't give you stability. You ready for that? All right. So in the book of James, um, we're going to be reading verses 5 through 8. But let me just connect back just for a second. So one of the things that we see in the book of James is kind of a major theme is that true saving faith is faith in action. So one of the major sections of the book of James that's made controversial over the years is how faith without works is dead. There's a way in which saving faith isn't alone. It results in change, and it works outward in our lives in various ways. And so true saving faith is faith in action. And we looked at last week in uh, verses 1 through 4, how trials promote joy because trials produce maturity. And so one of the, the challenges to that proposition is that we don't really see maturity as desirable as it actually is. Like being conformed to the image of Jesus, if we're honest, I would say this about my own life, being conformed to the image of Jesus isn't nearly as appealing as relief from the thing that God is using to make me more like Jesus. And that's the challenge for us. We'll be challenged again today in that reality. It's like we'd rather get escape from the trial than rejoice in the good work that's happening and making us more like Jesus. That's a challenge for us, every single one of us. I feel pretty confident in that. And so this morning, we're going to see how this section that deals with wisdom even connects to that reality of the fact that we, we go through trials. At the end, look in verse 4 with me real quick. At the, kind of the end of what we studied last week, it says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. So the picture is that, that trials produce maturity in us, and there will be a day where all of us, if you know Jesus Christ, there will be a day where you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus. What you know and what you are in part, you'll, you'll know and you'll be in full on that day when you meet God face to face, and he completes the work that he began in you. But look at the, the wording. It says, lacking in nothing at the end of verse 4. And then look at the word that pops up again in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. So here's kind of the paradox. Is that there's a place, there's a time where we're going to be lacking in nothing. But for now, we lack all sorts of things. And namely, we lack wisdom. 
We lack wisdom, particularly as it relates to the trials that we go through. So let's read verses 5 through 8 together, and then we'll try to make some observations. Time is working against me a little bit. Verse 5 says this. This is God's word for us. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So later in chapter 3, James is going to talk to us about the, what I would say is the nature or character of biblical wisdom, Christian wisdom. But this section is dealing with the, the pursuit of that wisdom. Like how do you go about getting wisdom when you lack wisdom? That's essentially what we're looking at here. And the command is simply, ask God for the wisdom that you lack. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Ask God for the wisdom you lack. Now, I think many of us, including myself, I think we have used this verse, if you know this verse, um, in a way that maybe isn't wrong, but it's possibly secondary. Because just generally, there's a way in which we can come to God when we don't know the answer to certain things, and God provides a sense of wisdom. But most specifically, what's being dealt with right here is wisdom in the context of trials. It's connected to what we read last week. When you go through trials, if you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom. Ask him to to show you. Ask him to help you understand So wisdom, biblically, we could say, there's probably a lot of definitions you can give for wisdom. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. Wisdom is the correct application of knowledge. So wisdom would be to take the knowledge of verses 1 through 4 and correctly apply it. Specifically to ask for wisdom on how God wants us to respond in a trial. How he wants to use the trial in our lives. And that is hard. Can we just acknowledge that for a second? It's difficult in the midst of pain and trial to be like, God, what do you want to teach me? What are, you, what are you doing? How can I respond in obedience to that particular work? But let me read right here Michael's words for us. I actually reached out to Michael last week about James 1, 1 through 4, asking him to just respond to the text of considerate joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. It's one thing to preach that. It's another to live it and seek to apply it as you live it. And this is part of what Michael shared in his response. He says, I'm seeing God's hand in this journey as crazy as that sounds. I've been on my knees and face more these last two months than I have in past years combined. His presence has been so real at times, so sweet. I have even sat down to read his word and made a place beside me for the Holy Spirit to sit so he could teach me. The tears flow freely. Even now, my vision is blurred with tears. And so one of the things I thought about as I read his words is that, like, even that sentiment of, like, let the Holy Spirit be with me to... Michael isn't just going to the Word of God to try to find some sort of trite solution to lymphoma. It's actually not there. But what he wants is is wisdom from God, God to sit with him, as it were, to sink into his heart, what do you want to do with me? Like, what do you want to do in this moment? What do you want to do in this 
trial. And that's the, that's the right application of the knowledge that we get in verses one through four. Is say, God, what are you, how are you working through this? Ask God for the wisdom that you lack. If you lack, ask. Trials and difficulties are disorienting and confusion. The response is, ask God for the wisdom that you lack. Now, I think you and I can imagine going to James, just reading this brief section, and looking at James and being like, hey, James, I'm, I'm going through something really difficult, really hard, and I, and I don't know what to do. And I have to imagine his response would be something like this. would be like, have you asked God about it? Have you asked God what to do? Have you asked God for wisdom? Because real plainly, this is, this is the command. See, lots of commands in this book. This is the command. Ask God for the wisdom that you lack. And we're going to see how to ask in just a second. But his response isn't, if you lack wisdom, do everything you can to get out of the place that you're in. James doesn't say, if you lack wisdom, get your boys together, cook up a plan, and go do that plan. James doesn't say, if you lack wisdom, don't sleep, toil, and be anxious. He doesn't say, if you lack wisdom, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Ask God for the wisdom that you lack, and particularly the wisdom to understand and to embrace the trial he has you within. What are you doing in the midst of it? Ask God for the wisdom you lack. And we ask God because he's the source of all wisdom. When we lack wisdom, we need to go to wisdom's source. That makes sense, right? God possesses the wisdom that we lack. He's not short of wisdom at all. He possesses it all. So it makes sense that we go to wisdom's source for wisdom that we don't possess. Trials and tribulations have a way of stripping us of our feelings of self-reliance and self-assurance. So we cry out for what James calls later in chapter 3, wisdom from above. We need wisdom that doesn't come from within us, but comes from without and comes from above, down to us. and invades our hearts to allow us to think things that we don't naturally think. In the midst of Job's gut-wrenching loss, if you don't know anything about the Bible, Job is like the quintessential picture of suffering in life. And so in the midst of his gut-wrenching loss of losing family and physical affliction, of losing all of his wealth, he says, where shall wisdom be found? Job 28, 12. Where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Job's trial instructed him about how men don't understand the worth of wisdom. He, became, he came to realize all the places where wisdom can't be found and all the people who don't possess wisdom and so he responds in this way. The world is full of people who don't know how to find wisdom, but Job 28, 23 through 28 says, he says, God understands the way to it, to wisdom, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And when he gave to the wind its weight and appointed the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it. And searched it out, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So we go to wisdom's source for the wisdom that we lack. Proverbs 8.22 says, The Lord possessed or fathered me wisdom at the beginning of his work. 
Wisdom was like a child of God at the beginning of his work in all of creation, the first of his acts of old. So we ask God because he's the source of wisdom. And secondly, this should encourage us. We ask God because he gives generously. He gives generously to his people. In verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. God won't merely answer. He will abundantly answer. He doesn't provide just a little bit of insight. He answers abundantly when his children call upon his name. Proverbs 2, 6 and 7 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upper. He's just, he's just like he's storing it up for us to dole it out when we come and ask. He's got it prepared to give to us. So the question becomes, are we going to ask? Are we going to pursue him? Are we going to come up with our own plans, disconnected from the ultimate source of wisdom? Psalm 8411, speaking of God's generosity, says, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And the order of these Greek words is kind of interesting because they, they, they read like this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask the giving God. Let him ask the giving. Like giving is so linked to the character of God. He's described as the giving God in this text. So our challenge is our own faith, right? Our own belief that God is who he says that he is, that he's faithful to to hear and to respond to the cries of his people. And we do struggle with that, right? But the God of the Bible is the giving God. He possesses a single-minded intent to give to his people when they come to him. He is generous. He's available. So ask God for the wisdom that you lack. I don't know about you, but I've had in my life, I've had supervisors, I've had coaches, who were harsh, and you did not want to ask them questions. Like when you lack wisdom, you didn't, you didn't want to go to them because there would be ridicule. I remember my first boss out of college was just a dumpster fire. <laughs> Sorry, I, I couldn't think of a better term. It just... It was tough. It was tough, especially for like a motivated, you know, prideful in some ways college grad. I thought I had a lot to offer. And he was just, he was harsh. Ridicule me when I didn't know things, like really make me feel about this big. But we have those people. He'd be like, hey, that's a stupid question. Like figure it out yourself. How about this? So I still have this experience as, as, as an adult or pastor in rooms of people where there's a question asked, and I want to raise my hand for clarification. Or I have a question. How many of you know that feeling of like, I'm not going to raise my hand because what if people, they're going to make fun of me, right? There's this inward sense of like, I don't want to be ridiculed or cast away because I'm being exposed for what I don't know. Any of you ever had that feeling? Am I the only one? Okay. <laughs> There's a couple people in here. But not so with God. That when you come to him, like stripped of all your notions of self-reliance, like just completely not knowing what to do. This whole picture of like he gives generously without reproach is God will never ridicule you for coming to him in dependence. He'll never turn you away for the wisdom that you lack. 
What a joyful privilege it is for the people of God. God doesn't denounce the cries of his people or ridicule us when we're confused and needy. He'll give wisdom to the one who asks. And church family, this is like, again, this is our challenge. Like, do we believe these things? Like, do we believe that these things are true? God's word is telling us these things are true, but do we believe them? Does it affect the way that we relate to God? Does it affect the way that we journey through trials? Like, do we believe? And as a result, do we ask, do you believe God is wisdom source? Do I believe that God is generous? What are the implications if we don't? Well, here's just a couple of consideration. If God isn't the source of wisdom for us, then something or someone else will be. If we don't place our faith in God, then our faith will just be displaced to other things, to ourself, to other people, other places, But do we go to God? I even think about the various places, even in the Bible, that tell us to pursue wisdom in sound counsel. Even your experience serves as a source of wisdom. But those are all supplemental to the source. But I wonder if some of our challenges, we turn supplemental sources of wisdom into the ultimate source of wisdom. And we kind of leave God as a secondary consideration for our struggles and our plans and our reactions to our difficulty. If God, in our eyes, is stingy and not generous, like why bother going to him, right? And all this accentuates James' second command to ask. In verse 6, look back there with me. Verse 6, he says the command again, but let him ask, but then he tells us the way in which we're to ask, in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. So ask God in faith. We're instructed by James about what to ask for. Now he he instructs us on how to ask. Isaiah 7, 9 says it this way. It says if you're not firm in faith, you're not going to be firm at all. So do we ask God for wisdom, believing that he'll provide the very thing he says he'll provide to us? That sounds pretty elementary. But there's a reason this command hits so hard. Because a lot of times we may give lip service to asking God for wisdom, but we actually don't believe that when we come, he's going to provide the very thing that we need. Don't we? Isn't that a struggle? We know it's the right thing. We see very simply here. But when it comes down to it, I'm not quite sure if I actually believe that wisdom is going to be mine when I go to God in faith but I, I am a little bit more like the, the person that's kind of tossed by the waves. But I would just say this real briefly. This doesn't mean that there's a perfect f- faith free from all doubt or questions. I don't think this is what this is talking about because the Bible is replete with examples of imperfect faith. It doesn't mean that you're void of questions. It doesn't mean that your faith is perfect. But Hebrews 11.6, it does say this. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God or to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And I may not know why this trial is happening, but I know God exists. And I know there's a reward in pursuing him by faith. And so I go by faith, resting in him trusting in his character, but the doubting man is at odds within himself. He's driven and tossed by the wind. That's the picture given by James. It's interesting in chapter 2, in verse 4, 
It says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves, namely among the rich and the poor? And that word distinction is the same word here for doubt. So the picture is this. We're like a, a two-headed monster. Like we made distinctions or created opposing possibilities in our mind as to what God is like and what, what he's going to do. So I'm going to go by faith, and he might, he might give me wisdom, but he might not. That's the picture of doubt. It's not that you just have a question. It's that you, you actually live in both places. Like you're not willing to actually trust God completely that he's going to answer and provide the wisdom. That, so you try to live in both spots. So James actually seemingly kind of coins a phrase here when he talks about double-minded a little bit later. Look, look back at the text with me. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's vacillating, uncertain, divided in interest and or opinion. But literally what James is saying, he's, he's like he's a double-souled, a double-hearted individual. Like he's so split in two. It's like he has two minds, two souls, two hearts, seeking to live in both places at once. That man is the one who will be tossed to and fro by the waves of trial. One commentator talked about it, it's like, like a cork on the surface of the water. And the inevitable ups and downs of life, he will just wildly take the ride of trials, unanchored by anything because he's seeking to live in both places, both doubting God and believing in God, at least by word. Like the surf, when we walk in doubt, we're driven, agitated by the wind. The waves are predictable, unpredictable because they're acted upon or driven by the wind. And maybe the picture is this. In our doubt, we're being acted upon by doubt instead of acting in faith and moving toward God. So there's a passive receipt of all that doubt brings. It just comes like wave after wave. We're driven to and fro because we haven't gone to God in faith to trust that he is who he says he is. We're tossed by the waves of uncertainty. We constantly go up and down from hope to fear, from trust to anger, from peace to anxiety, perpetual pendulum swing that finds our hearts and our minds in two places at the same time. And the end of all this, and maybe you feel this way, and maybe there's a way in which God's ministry to you this morning is to reveal to you that you are the person at the end of this that is unstable in all your ways. Like you feel the reality of being that cork on the top of the water that is just quite literally thrown from high to low without seemingly any grounding. What God would want you to hear this morning is that he stands ready to be your source of wisdom when you lack it. But it's your responsibility to ask him and believe in him that he'll answer. Do you believe? Do you believe? Like, do you feel enough of the weight of being thrown to and fro by your own self-reliance and independence that it causes you to flee to Jesus Christ? to run to him as the only source of stability in this life and in the life to come. Ask God to increase the faith that you lack. Now it's possible, if not likely, as I've been preaching, there's probably one particular trial or difficulty that 
has been gnawing at you a little bit. Like, you know, when I look at you and I say, what's the, what's the trial for you? Like, what's the difficulty? There's probably likely one thing, maybe a couple things that come to mind, some source of difficulty. Because we all have those things. That God will use that trial to bring about maturity in your life. But one of the questions we have to ask is like, will you let him do that? Because it seems based on this text, there will be some people who don't allow God to use the trial to mature them. Instead, they, they, they try to press through with independence and self-reliance and, and prove at the end to be unstable in all their ways because they've never trusted in God. The self-sufficiency. All of us struggle with that, but there's undoubtedly some of us in this room that need to be really confronted with that reality. And not just as it relates to practical choices in life, but for the very eternal destination of your soul. Are you trusting in yourself, not just in moment by moment and decisions in life? Are you trusting in yourself that somehow in all of this, in all of life, at the end of it all, you're going to have proven to be wiser than God in seeking to, to make a way, a pathway for salvation on your own? Because in this unique picture given in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, one of the many things that Jesus has called is the very wisdom of God. And so this, this picture, like in, in circumstances, whatever you feel, whatever twinge and kind of gnaw you feel, this thing, financial, emotional, physical, that thing, God faithfully kind of strips us of like self-reliance and independence. But isn't that the very thing that happens when you become a Christian? Like in that, that first moment of faith, like the work that God does, at least in part, if not in full, is he says, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. You can't get there on your own. You can't pave the way based on your own behavior. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in me. That's the message of the gospel is what we can't do, Jesus did for us. And so this day by day wrestling with our trials and trusting in God by faith, going to him is an expression of that inward submission to the work of God. Or we come to the end of ourselves and we say, God, what I could never do, you did for me. And by faith, I look to you to be my source of wisdom from above. Salvation, redemption, and sanctification, all these words that are attributed to the person and work of Jesus. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to finish with this. In that moment where we come to faith in Jesus, and if, you, if you're not a Christian in this room, I'm so grateful that you're here. I was in a room like this, a church, 20 plus years ago as not a Christian. And by and by, God graciously opened my eyes to the wonder of the gospel. And one of the things he did is he confronted me with, with the fact that if I got to stand before God in that moment, I had no idea what I would tell him as to why I deserve to get into heaven. But now I know. It's not by anything that I have done. It's through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I just want to kind of push this down deep, deep into your heart. It's really like a gospel reflection of what we talked about just practically in our need for wisdom moment by moment. Then in our sense of self-righteousness, 
The gospel crushes us under the realization that our hearts are darkened and we're desperately needy for God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, we'll read that together. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I want you just to take note of the, all the different uses of folly or wisdom. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, namely the cross, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He goes on to say, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you're in this room this morning, you've never believed in Jesus. The only right response for you is not to just leave here trying to ask God for practical wisdom day by day. You're going to find yourself to be unstable in all your ways because you've never trusted him to begin with. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus as the one who is the very wisdom of God to crush the folly of our own pursuits and trying to make a way to him. He showed us that he's wiser in all his ways. And the word of the cross is that Jesus was treated on the cross as if he lived your sinful life. So that when you do meet God face to face, and you will, through faith in him, you will get to be treated as if you live the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Believe in it today. And if you have believed in it, then the expression day by day is to continue to die to your feelings of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and run to God and ask him for the wisdom that you lack. And do it with faith, not with doubting so that you prove to be stable in all your ways in this day as we seek to be an example to the world around us. Let me ask you to bow your head just for a minute. We're going to take communion together. I want to ask you just to consider for a moment just the ways in which maybe you have gone about, whether practically as a Christian, walking in self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And I want to encourage you to not take the Lord's Supper without having dealt with maybe the specific ways that you have been walking in pride and self-reliance. In communion, the Lord's Supper, this cracker, this cup, represent a spiritual reality that for believers that we are trusting completely in Jesus to do what we can never do on our own. So if you're not a Christian in this room, communion is not for you. I'd encourage you not to take this but instead do business with God. Ask the question as to what, what have you done with Jesus? Like who is, who is he to you? Don't leave here not responding to God as he probes your heart. If you believed in Christ for salvation, you can come up and grab the elements and we'll take them together here in just a couple minutes. There's a table in the back as well as in the front and kind of come through the middle and then kind of fan out to the sides and we'll take the elements here in just a couple minutes together.
take a minute and pray for us. God, for many of us uh, this week, we've seen <clears throat> words of revival uh, at Asbury College and uh, the emotions and reactions have ranged from skepticism to utter elation at the notion that you were at work in supernatural ways. And it's the reason I, I bring it up in prayer, God, is because we, we so long to see the hearts of men and women change. Like we, we want to see a work of God in our generation, but not in some just emotional sense. Not in some fleeting sense, but in a, in a permanent way that brings about permanent change. That starts with confession, agreeing with you that our sin is wrong and moves to a place of repentance where we turn away from it. But then leads to a life lived where having been saved by faith alone, that that faith itself is not alone. That we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So I pray that for us as a church that we would use this time and taking the Lord's Supper as a purifying work in our hearts to lay aside sin in a particular, specific, and forceful way at the foot of the cross, that we wouldn't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, but we take it humbly with gratitude as an act of remembrance, proclaiming your death, Jesus, until you return. Our hope is in you. Our confidence and our boast is only in the cross to which we've been crucified to the world and the world to us. Thank you for what you've done, Jesus. If I could just say something real practically, just from my heart to yours as a pastor and as a brother in Christ, um, may the Lord like protect us from ever just getting used to the fact that we get to be forgiven. You know, we do this um, a couple times a month. At the very least, that's something that should happen in us. Is it reminded just like the, like an overwhelming nature of the fact that although we have broken God's law, that we get to be forgiven. We get to be a part of his family. We get to have assurance day by day that we belong to him. If you trusted in Jesus. And so as you take this symbol, this small cracker, I pray to remind you to remind us of the fact that Jesus' very real body was pierced through for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. Let's take the cracker in remembrance of that. As I often commend us to remember as we look at this cup, I mean the cup gives us a practical picture once we drink it that uh, it's empty. And so it's the blood of Jesus poured out for us that gives us payment for our sin. But as we drink it, as you find it empty, it may remind you that Full payment was made for your debt through the blood of Jesus. There's nothing more left for you to drink other than to remember that his payment was made in full. Let's go ahead and drink it together in remembrance of his blood. Thank you, God. Let me just read this to encourage us as we go to sing one last song. Just receive this like to you personally. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Why? So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.